Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. And you're very welcome back to Tip Today. Time to talk global politics with uh, Tipperary's Thomas Conway, who's a politics and economics student at uh, Trinity. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And good to see you today. Spotlight on Indonesia over the last while, but for, for kind of different reasons? Yeah, for kind of different reasons. I suppose the first thing that drew attention to it was the G20 summit in yeah. Bali on the Indonesian island of Bali and that was obviously highly consequential in its own right. We then had that devastating earthquake about two weeks ago. It pummeled the island of Java. Over 250, perhaps 300 people killed. And then over the weekend, one of the volcanoes on that same island of Java, Mount Semeru, erupted and that's creating its own damage. So, you know, a lot of natural disasters and I suppose that owes to the fact that Indonesia is located on what's known as the Pacific Ring of Fire. So where tectonic plates collide, it's vulnerable to that kind of seismic activity. But I wanted to look at it for a different reason because I don't think people, a lot of people will realise this, but Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim majority state for a start. It's also the third biggest democracy globally. And it's the fourth most populous state, 276 million people dispersed across various islands stretched from the Indian Ocean right over to the Pacific. So, you know, a lot of demographic factors and and social factors feeding into it. And from a geopolitical perspective, it is becoming really important. It's caught up in this kind of strategic contest now between the US and China both are vying for inf- uh, for influence, I suppose, mm. in the region. But the interesting thing about Indonesia is it's not simply a pawn. In economic terms, it is seriously competitive. The sixth biggest emerging market by a share of GDP in the past decade, its economy has grown almost as much as China and India, which is staggering in its own right, considering we don't hear an awful lot about it. And it has a lot of natural assets. It has specific assets when it comes to things like natural resources. The country is home to huge amounts of nickel. And that's a mineral which is used in electric batteries. Electric batteries used to power electric cars, which is obviously a growing industry. So it has those natural advantages. I was particularly interested to read all of this that you prepared for us, Thomas, because I was in Jakarta about, I think it's 30 years or more ago, and the poverty I saw there was incredible. Now, you had these luxury hotels, but right across the road, literally, people living down on the rivers and, you know. Yeah, and I've no doubt there remains a fair degree of poverty. I would imagine the economic disparities, even from reading it, the economic disparities, there are still huge gulfs there. Mm. But there is also a growing middle class. And, you know, as I mentioned there, economy growing rapidly, starting to flourish, mm. very astute in terms of economic policies. It's mm. uh, it's go- the government's economic policies. And that is being led by the president, a man called Joko Widodo. He's nicknamed Jokowi for short. Rose to power in 2014 ahead at the head of a, a surprisingly diverse coalition government, which was kind of a first for Indonesia, brought together mm. various party factions. And he has taken a number of interesting stances. The, the most interesting, perhaps, is his stance on the war in Ukraine. Mm. Indonesia has remained ostensibly neutral, could yes. we say. And he's spoken to everybody. He's spoken to everybody. Yeah. Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Zelensky. He's met all of them. And obviously he was at the, 
the core of the G20 summit, mm. it being held in his country earlier this year. But he's also presided over kind of a transform transformative economic policies in the region. I mentioned there, like poverty probably still high among certain factions of the population, but the rates are falling. And there is no doubt about that. If Indonesia continues on its current trajectory economically, it should evolve into one of the world's 10 largest economies within the next decade. Interestingly, its currency, the rupiah, has actually outperformed a lot of rich world currencies, i.e. the dollar, uh, the won, the euro, since the kind of currency crunch earlier this that's, year. That's interesting. Are they vulnerable in any way? Like, who's investing in, in Indonesia, for example? Well, yeah, well, this is the thing. Indonesia lies within China's sphere of influence, just geographically, and China is pouring money into the country. There's no doubt about that. Since 2020, in the past year to two years, it has invested four times as much as the United States. So significant inflow of capital from China. There is no doubt about that. And the country is also vulnerable to certain economic and political dangers. And the first one is the issue of succession. I mentioned President Joko Widodo there. He's kind of perceived as a a beacon of stability, a trailblazer. His term of office, his second term, ends in 2024. And as of now, there is no kind of viable successor emerging. Some have even speculated that will he tamper with the constitution perhaps to to ensure another term in power I don't think he will do that from anything I've read he's he's a firm believer in mm. kind of constitutional limits and those aspects of democracy so that is a risk to but Indonesia is, is democracy sound there though well in the past several years they have kind of managed to combine democracy with economic reform mm. now there are vulnerabilities there are fractures and weaknesses there which can't be denied. But I mentioned there he's put together a surprisingly diverse coalition government which suggests that there is cross-collaboration between the various parties there. I would say it isn't completely sound. I mean, The Economist, we've mentioned that index before, it rates democracies and it brands Indonesia as a flawed democracy, which isn't the worst. You know, Mm. it has certain vulnerabilities and fractures there that it needs to look out to look out for. Mm. And the same applies to economic policy because it is practising this kind of policy of slight protectionism, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the natural resources industry, it's trying to protect the industries which which it thrives off. And that could obviously present a danger because in order to flourish economically it must remain integrated into mm. global markets. You spoke about the influence, uh, considerable influence indeed, of China there. What happens if there's an issue with Taiwan, for example? Well, that is the big concern, I would imagine, on Joko Widodo's mind and on the minds of a lot of Indonesian politicians because any conflagration between the US and China or China and Taiwan, that could damage Indonesia's economic prospects. Why? because it would close crucial shipping lanes upon which uh. Indonesia denies. And obviously a lot of the world, Australia, will be, you know, uh, will be cautious there as well. Any, any of that area around the Pacific Ocean and, uh, and Asia there, it could be vulnerable to, uh, to a conflagration, conflagration in Taiwan. So that is a looming mm. concern without if doubt. If it continues to show growth, if it continues to develop, what what will the result of that be, Thomas? I think we will see India, Indonesia emerging as 
somewhat of an economic superpower, not on the same level as the United States or China, but maybe somewhat similar to India. I mean, if you look at India, India is opting for a kind of a form of economic growth, which is led by technology and manufacturing. Indonesia is slightly different. Its model kind of revolves around its own natural resources, a little bit of industrial protectionism, and then cross-party politics and, of course, neutrality in terms of its military policy. So it's kind of the bright new star of Asia in many respects, and it may have a significant influence on world affairs. It may be able to influence the big powers like US and China, like the US and China, as we move forward. It's interesting. And let's move closer to home because we're going to speak about Europe's global status now. And you, you reckon it's, it's seriously under threat at this point, Thomas? It is kind of worrying. It is kind of worrying. Now, I mean, that's not what people will think first off, because the war in Ukraine has obviously united Europe like ever before. Like mm. never before, there has been solidarity and support of Ukraine. The countries are working together. But there are also threats to the continent and and they come from from our allies, I suppose, as well as our nemesis abroad. The first thing... Our allies, are you talking about the States? I'm talking about the States. Surprisingly, I'll get to that in a minute. Mm. But just to look at first the energy crisis, and obviously people will know this, but I suppose energy prices have reduced somewhat relative to what they were in the summer, Mm. but it still poses serious dangers gas prices six times higher than their usual average. There are various estimates, but some suggest that the increase in energy prices could actually lead to excess mortality, so excess deaths within the continent. What what kind of numbers are we Yeah, one prediction says over 100,000 elderly people in Europe could perish as a result of the energy crisis. And that would mean that Vladimir Putin's war would effectively take out more people outside of Ukraine than it would within it. So that is scary. And I don't want to frighten people too much, but mm. these are all dangers which which have to be considered. It's also creating acute financial vulnerabilities. The Euro, obviously the ECB, the European Central Bank, facing a major dilemma. It needs to raise interest rates. We had the, the Irish Central Bank governor coming out within the past few hours saying rates need to rise yeah. by by about one or by about zero point five percent. It has to do that to control prices. But doing that could also destabilize It's a very difficult one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, destabilize the Eurozone's weaker members, Italy in particular, which has a heavy debt burden, will be particularly concerned about that. Mm. And Europe's commercial structure is another thing. We've mentioned this before ad nauseum. Too many of Europe's industrial firms, well, first were reliant on Russia for gas and energy, but too many firms in Germany in particular are reliant on China for sources of inputs. So that is another concern. So hopefully we will have learnt um, from the last year. I wonder, will we? I wonder, will we? Well, going forward, you would have to say, and you know, there has been criticism of, I suppose, Europe's, uh, shall we say, naivety in Mm, the past. Angela Merkel has come out trying to kind of defend her reputation. Her reputation has kind of been tarnished for the degree to which she had allowed Germany to become reliant. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. We, we alluded to uh, to America there a while ago and uh, talk to me a little bit about the Biden administration because essentially, I mean, a lot of uh, Trump's uh, exactly. protectionism is still in place. I had it? to almost laugh when I was yeah. reading through kind of pieces on this. It, it is quite similar. He hasn't changed tack all that much. Even on a broader perspective, he's continued the confrontation with China 
But in terms of economic protectionism, he has sort of maintained that approach. And one issue is causing big contention between European and American diplomats at the moment. And that's his his subsidy scheme. So he uh, he launched a new flagship policy, I suppose, called the Inflation Reduction Act. Historic investment in climate investment, but also in in energy subs in subsidies for firms mm. in the US, and that of course threatens to undercut Europe's yes. energy. Did he firms. not backtrack a little bit on that? Though? He backed. Of course, Macron was over. Yeah, he was yeah. wooing Macron last week. First state visits. Uh, you know, roll the red carpet out for him and his rhetoric softened mm. a little. But there is no doubt that there is tensions there because as a consequence, Europe is losing investment to the US and effectively being kind of drained of commercial vitality. So you have these subtle tensions emerging and then you look at Europe's growth figures. Now, some speculate that Europe's economic output could fall by 2 to 3% doesn't sound like much, but it's actually quite significant from an economic perspective. That's the kind of long-term predictions. And then to add to all this, finance ministries across the continent adopting all sorts of measures to soften the impact of the energy crisis. I think over half a trillion euros of public money has been dedicated to energy subsidies and supports in the past year alone. A it's, staggering it's volume. Incredible. And we know, God knows, from our own situation here about that uh, as well. But what about the overall uh, danger? And again, the geopolitics of this and where Europe will end up if we keep on this trajectory. Yeah, that that is... Um, our now, importance, I suppose. Our importance yeah. in the global scene. Now, I suppose the war in Ukraine has focused renewed attention on the continent, but that doesn't mask the fact that there is a broader geopolitical shift happening the US and China are now the two superpowers, as we've, as we've mentioned. A lot of economic activity is moving towards Asia, towards Southeast Asia, towards the likes of Indonesia, which we've just spoken about. And the focus is shifting away from Europe. And there are demographic factors feeding into that as well. We have an ageing population in Europe, not so much in Ireland, but certainly across the continent. People are getting older there are less people of working age. So the productivity of Europe as a whole is falling. So these are all things that we have to consider. Please tell me that that's not all bad news. Have you any good news for us? No, no, it's not all. And, you know, we're coming up to Christmas. We have to we have to uh, keep a positive face. So, look, I mean, the wave of European populism that we saw over the past decade, that has kind of abated slightly. A lot of those populist parties have either faded or they've moderated their views, some being incorporated mm. into government in the lights of Italy yes. and Sweden, uh, but they have moderated their views somewhat. Certainly in France we've seen that, haven't so we? So we have seen that with Marine yeah. Le Pen in France. Yeah. And then, of course, as a result of the war in Ukraine, an unprecedented degree of solidarity amongst European countries, and that has been heartening and reassuring. But I suppose, make no mistake, this, the continent is facing a set of gargantuan, challenges. There is no doubt about that. And the next few years could could make or break the European project. Just finally, let's talk a little bit. We only have a few moments left, but I, if we, we, we love to talk about American politics and it. the new face of the Republican uh, Party. And that's one gentleman in particular, isn't it? Yeah, it is Ron DeSantis. It's, it's Donald Trump is facing a serious threat from within his own party. And his name is, is Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. People will be familiar with him. He was really the big winner of the midterm elections. You know, he swept to victory in Florida. He had previously won by a slender 32,000 votes. This was back in 
2018, so 0.4%. He coasted to victory this time round, 20 percentage points, the margin. What is it about him, Thomas? I mean, what, what makes him popular? So th- there are a number of things. I mean, he has a familiar backstory to most US politicians. Harvard educated, I think Harvard and Yale. But he's been an outspoken critic on a number of issues. He's kind of styled himself as, as an opponent of the woke agenda, mm. woke culture. Woke he, dies here. Uh, was that yes, his, that was uh, the quote, or that's counselor, the phrase yeah. that, that he liked woke to use. Woke comes here to die, I think. Yeah, it was, that's exactly, it. precisely it. You know, he, he was in opposition to some of the stricter COVID measures when the pandemic was, was in full swing. More recently, however, he's kind of been praised for his management of Hurricane Ian, which obviously pummeled Florida back in September. Yes. But he's plucky, he's ambitious, and he's young and charismatic. But was he not a Trump fan? He was a Trump fan, of course he was. Yeah, and this is uh, this is the really interesting thing. I mean, he progressed up the ranks. He was in the U.S. Navy. I mentioned all that. But he was first elected to Congress as a House representative in 2012, formerly a close ally of Donald Trump, and supported him on a number of issues, including the Robert Mueller investigation into into election meddling in the 2016 presidential election. Then in August 2018, he won the Republican nomination for governor, became governor of Florida. And since then, he has kind of, I suppose, first equivocated in terms of his views on Trump. And now he's presenting himself as a challenger. So... Does he have what it takes? Now, I know we're a few years out, but still. We are a few years out. Like, he has the charisma and he has the credentials and he's also a family man, which obviously plays well with with certain conservative American voters. Many would see him as kind of Trump without the baggage. You know, are people becoming uh, tired, wary of Donald Trump? And could Ron DeSantis offer an alternative in which... He's a little bit more presidential. Mm. Uh, a little he looks bit, the part, doesn't he? He looks just, the part. Yeah. He certainly does. Yeah. And he's leading Trump in polling. I know it's very early days, mm. it has to be said. Mm. In states, he, he has an 11-point lead in Iowa, as much as a 26-point cushion in his home state of Florida. But as I say, he is 44 years of age. Mm. So he's young enough to wait and sit this one out. The thing is... Opportunities to become president. I, I read in Barack Obama's book, he said this. Ted Kennedy approached him and said, go for it. Because yes, you these have a things, window of opportunity. You have a window of opportunity yeah. and it only comes around once. That's interesting. Okay, uh, just briefly because we only have a minute left. What should we be looking out for uh, in the coming week? Well, I mentioned the subsidy war between the US, yeah. Europe and the US, so I won't get into that. But I did read an interesting piece in the week looking at Moldova, obviously an Eastern European country a country which is acutely vulnerable, I think, to Vladimir Putin. Uh, it has a region, Transnistria, which is effectively controlled by uh, by Russian proxies there. And there is a danger. Moldova is facing increasing dangers from Putin. He's using his energy weapon against it. Mm. The, uh, Have they come out against him for... Their his... Prime Minister, Natalia Gavrilita, she has been very firm in her opposition to Vladimir Putin, which I suppose is heartening and reassuring. At the same time, however, her country is under huge pressure, so we would hope her commitment doesn't wane. And just finally, I have to ask you about those tensions in China, because unprecedented stuff happening there. Yeah, we might speak a bit more about it next week, but tensions spilling out into the streets, the lockdowns, it is going pear-shaped for Xi Jinping just weeks, effectively, after he secured another term as Communist Party chief and Chinese president, We have protests, widespread protests across the country. 
Obviously, the Chinese government trying to repress that. It has effectively abandoned its zero COVID policy now and is going for a for a different line. But, mm. you know, that can't save Xi's blushes. Look, he yeah. his power is not... There is no threat to his power. Well, what's very rare, is this people power working in China? To a certain extent yeah. it is. I mean, they call it the largest protest since Tiananmen Square in 1989, mm, which, is, there, which is staggering. Yeah. Look at, so as I say, his position, not really under threat, but you'd imagine he is feeling pretty uncomfortable. All right, great to see you, Thomas. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, That's uh, Thomas Conway with our look at all things global. News and information's on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.